Um, I've, you've heard Pastor Dan say a number of times that uh, preparing for a sermon can be very convicting, and that has certainly been the case with me this week. Um, I've run across some things in my own life that uh, I found very disturbing. So basically, this morning, I'm preaching to myself, but, but you're all welcome to listen in if you want to. <laughs> we're going to take an in-depth look at worship this morning. Um, we're going to see what it really means to worship in spirit and in truth. It's important to understand this because just because we say, I'm going to worship God, he's not obligated to accept this worship. God has told us what worship, what true worship is all about. And if we don't worship him the way he needs to be worshiped, he doesn't have to accept that worship. It's, under, it's important that we study this so that we're not misled. It's important that we study this so we aren't deceived into thinking that we're worshiping God when we really aren't. Now, we can't possibly cover everything about worship in, in this one message, but what I want to do is take some elements of worship that we see fully demonstrated and, and, and given to us in the Old Testament and then see how they play out in the, as we look at what true worship really is according to the passage that we just read. Because we're short on time this morning with communion, I'm not going to have you turn to the passages. Uh, if you want to try to, you're welcome to, but uh, if you want to take notes, I'll give you the references. The first one is Genesis chapter 2. Uh, I'm sorry, Genesis 22, verse 4 through verse 8. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw a place from afar, saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the word, wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand and, and the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, Father, and he said, Here I am, son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. God has given us elements of worship, things that we can hold on to, things that we can see, things that demonstrate what true worship is all about. One of the first things we see here is there was a specific place. It wasn't just anywhere. When God was talking to Abraham, he didn't just say, Okay, I want you to do a sacrifice. It says that they raised their eyes and saw the place from the distance. God had told them where to go. Even in the New Testament, the passage that we read, um, um, remember Jesus said, uh, or the lady said to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. It's a place that's been specified by God. It's not just anywhere. The next thing, there was an offering. This is the giving of a possession. Again, something specific, specified by God, that demonstrates such things as, in the case of a sin offering, that's an, an acknowledgment of sin that has caused a separation between me and God. A thank offering, it's an acknowledgment of God's provision and my thankfulness for it. A love offering, that's an acknowledgment of, my, of God's perfection and, and uh, my love for God for who he is. And all of these different offerings, as we go through and look through the Old Testament, there are very specific things that determined how this offering was, these offerings were to be made. In 1 Chronicles 16, verse 29, we read, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. It was also in the psalm that we read this morning. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy attire. We see two more elements here. First of all, there's the acknowledgement of God's glory. This is a verbal proclamation or, or possibly singing to the glory of God. This is the glory that we ascribed to God, um, but it's, it's specified how we are to do this. Now the thing about God is we can't see God. So all of his attributes, who he is, 
his majesty, his glory, his wisdom, his love, all of these things, we can only ascribe those to him because he has revealed them to us. He lets us know what he wants us to know about himself, and we are to acknowledge that. The next thing that we saw was there has to be proper attire. These were special clothes. They had to be clean. They were, they were holy clothes. That means they were set aside, and they were only used at the time of worship. And if we go back to uh, some of the things for, that, that talked about the Levitical priesthood, these clothes had to be made in a special way. They were, they were special clothes. And these details, once again, were specified by God. A guy couldn't come in from the, from the fields and just uh, throw on a clean shirt and head on in and worship. It wasn't like that at all. This was, this was something that was very special and detailed by God how it had to happen. The next one I want to take a look at is when uh, Moses had gone down to the, had received the, the Ten Commandments, had gone down, got so upset he threw them and broke them, and now he's back up to the mountain the second time with the second set of tablets. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 8. Then the Lord passed by in front of them and proclaimed, The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of our fathers and the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low to the earth and worship. So here we see the element of bowing down. In the Old Testament, when we talked about bowing down, this was an action that someone took. It demonstrated vulnerability. It demonstrated submission. Um, even though this submission may have been for selfish reasons, uh, someone may have been submitting to someone because they want a blessing or because they don't want to be punished or because they want this person's protection. But it's interesting. There, there's a couple, couple different ways of bowing down. I can, I can bow down go down on both knees. And at this point, I'm, I'm vulnerable. I can't quickly get up. I, someone's standing over me. They have control over me at that point. But there's another way. I remember seeing in a movie one time when someone was told to, to bow down before a ruler. And he bowed down like this on one knee. He wasn't fully submitted. He wasn't completely vulnerable because it's very easy to get back up when the opportunity comes. So the question I have this morning, as I was going through this and preparing for it, when I come to worship the Lord, is there anything I'm holding back? Am I bowing down with both knees? Or am I holding back and just bowing down on one knee? Is there something in my life that I'm not letting have full control by God so that my worship can be what he wants it to be? It wasn't a comfortable question to deal with. Now, God gave another command to the Israelites through Moses, as we find in Deuteronomy 26, 10, and 11. He even told them what they were to say when they brought this offering. And this is a, this is a long passage, but this is part of what they were to say. And now, behold, I have brought the first of the produce of the ground, which, you, which thou, O Lord, hast given me. And then Moses goes on speaking to them, and he says, And you shall set this offering before the Lord your God, and worship before the Lord your God. And you and the Levite and the alien who is among you, you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given you in your household. The next element that we see here is rejoicing. It's an expression of happiness because God has blessed me. But even here, God was very specific about it. He gave them the actual words that they were to say. 
Now, there's a problem with all of this. This is all a beautiful picture, and there, and there are more elements. We just don't have time to deal with all of them in, in one, one message. But in all of these things, I can do all of them. I can do any one of them. I can do part of them. And I can do it without having a heart toward God. I can bow down without truly worshiping. I can sing songs and jump up and down, and I can rejoice without really having a heart for the Lord. And this is what... Uh, distress God so much. These people would do these things. They would perform these acts as a way of trying to appease God or gain a blessing or get his protection. And they really had no desire for a relationship with him. In Mark chapter 7, verse 6, we read, this is Jesus speaking, and he said to them, rightly did Isaiah, the pro Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And the prophet Malachi Chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, the Lord is speaking through him and says, You are presenting defiled food on my altar, but you say, How have we defiled thee? God goes on to say, In doing that, you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Proverbs fourteen twelve says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way of death. So while when we take all of these elements and we look at them and we understand what God is trying to explain to us, what, what the depth of worship is all about, we can now get a picture of, of what true worship is. And we want to look at this, but first we have to get right down to the basis of what true worship is all about. I mentioned that we can go through the, all the actions and we can perform all these, these ceremonial things and not have any worship actually take place of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, we read, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord in his statutes, which I am commanding to you today. And Jesus reiterated this in the, in the New Testament. In Mark 12, 28 through 31, we read, and one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that Jesus had answered them well, he asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost of all is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. That's where we have to start if we're going to worship the Lord with true worship. So the basis of true worship is to love God, to love the Lord, to, be, to desire to be obedient to his commandments because I know his commandments are for my good and for the good of everything in creation. It's to be based on a relationship with God and it has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with religion. So let's examine some of these elements from the perspective of true worship. The offering. This is something of mine that I want to give to God so that he can have control over it and make it a perfect blessing for others. These are the things that the Holy Spirit prompts me to give so God can use them, so that they will be used perfectly as he intends them to be used. These can be such things as my money, my time, my talents, my abilities, my possessions. These are things that I want to give to God so that he can use them 
in the lives of other people for his glory. That's different than sacrifice. This is something personal. This is something that's a part of me. It's not just something I'm holding on to. It's a part of me that my old nature wants to hold on to and exploit, but which the Holy Spirit tells me, put that aside, put it off. It has no place in your life. This is things like my lust, my anger, my fears, my distrust of others, my dislike of others, my lack of self-control, my pride. These are things that need to be burned on the altar, that need to be completely consumed and destroyed from out of my life. These are things that drive a wedge between me and other people that God wants his love to flow through me and into their lives. And these things get in the way and they prevent that from happening. The next, the acknowledgement of God's glory. This is living my life so that it is a demonstration of my belief in God as my creator, as a sovereign ruler of all creation, as a supreme authority. I want to I want how I live to be something that declares the glory of God so that people can see the wonder and the perfection of God's attributes through my life. Obviously, we can't see all of them through, through all of our lives. Uh, God has attributes that no human can display. But there are attributes that can be displayed, and we want to make sure they're seen clearly. The glory of God is seen in such things as his long-suffering, his perfect justice, his mercy, and his self-sacrificing love. So I acknowledge God's glory in my life when I exercise patience with people, just as God has exercised patience with me. When I desire justice for me, even when I'm wrong, because God is just. When I show mercy to others, even when I've been hurt or offended, because that's exactly what Christ did for me. It's when I'm striving to show sacrificial to lo love to others, just as Christ has loved me. This is acknowledging the glory of the Lord in my life by the way I live. The next one was proper attire. Now, this is not wearing a suit on Sunday morning. This is not the clergy wearing their clerical robes. There's a few verses that can give us an idea of this. From uh, The first one is Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Romans 13, 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Galatians 3, 27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with, the righteousness, with Christ. True worship is only possible when my heart is properly attired in righteousness, and it can only be the righteousness of Christ. Without that, there can be no true worship. The next one, to bow down. This is a heart that has a desire to be fully vulnerable before God, for him to have complete and utter control. It's, it's, it's something that goes beyond. We talked about bowing down on one knee bowing down on two knees. But there's another demonstration that's given in the Old Testament, that of falling prostrate, that's face down with my whole body completely out. This is even more vulnerable, even more submissive to the one who's over me. The picture of this is that this vulnerability, this submissiveness to God, is me being in a place where I am 
utterly incapable of claiming, claiming any righteousness of my own before a holy and perfect God. That's the ultimate bowing down, prostrate on the floor, face down before him. That's the concept. But there's more than that. It's also allowing him to raise me up and do whatever he desires with me. There's a chorus of a hymn that says this so beautifully. You raise me up so I can stand on mountains. You raise me up so I can walk on stormy seas. I'm strong when I'm on your shoulders. You raise me up to more than I could ever be. This is what God wants to do with our lives, and it can only come when we worship him in complete submission. The next one, rejoicing. This springs directly from the indwelling Holy Spirit that's within us. We're all familiar with the, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Joy comes from the Holy Spirit. This is true joy. This isn't just happiness or excitement that we experience with things that happen to us in the world. This is something deep and abiding that when we begin to grasp and hold on to what the love of God in our lives is really all about. First Peter 1.8 says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The world has no comprehension of what this is. Now that doesn't mean that this joy can't be expressed. That's not what that verse is saying. It's saying that this joy is so incredible that we can never fully express it. We can do anything we want in our lives, but we can never come to a complete expression of how deep and, and intense this joy is within us. Psalm 70, verse 4 says, Let all who seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee, and let those who love thy salvation say continually, Let the Lord be magnified. And of course, we're familiar with the one that when Paul was in prison, a miserable, horrible place, and yet he wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, Rejoice. This is something that takes us above any, any circumstance the world can possibly throw at us. We rejoice not because of what we can get from God or what we have gotten from God. We rejoice because of who he is. And we rejoice because of how his love has changed us and has enabled, uh, has enabled us to allow his love to flow through us into the lives of others. I want to take just a moment to, to talk about emotions. Emotions are a gift from God that enable, to, uh, enable us to worship him even more completely. We express sorrow when we, when we contemplate our sin. We express sorrow when we contemplate the death of the, of, of the Lord on the cross. We experience peace and we, ex we express reverence and awe when we meditate on who God is. We express anger when we see injustice and we, when we see false teachers uh, deliberately misleading people away from God and into the clutches of Satan. When it comes to rejoicing, this is excitement. This is singing. This is shouting. This is dancing. This is allowing the Holy Spirit to express himself through us, not only in our thoughts and our words, but also through our emotions as well. Now, I want to you to stop and think for a moment because I had to, to really struggle with this this week. If I really believe in the transformation that takes place in people, if I really understand and really take seriously 
what it means to be translated out of the kingdom of Satan and into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, then I should be so fired up and excited at every single baptism that the shouting and the cheering and the dancing and the singing and the rejoicing that takes place in this auditorium should exceed anything that you'd ever hear in any sports bar in Boston if the Red Sox won the World Series in the last game, in the last inning. This is greater than that. This is greater than any Super Bowl. This is greater than all of them put together. And it should be something that just causes us to, to rejoice in it with everything that's within us, every part of our being. When we sing songs about the victory of Christ, that Christ has won on the cross of Calvary over the evil forces of Satan, the roof on this building should be going up so that our the joy and our sound should be exploding out into the neighborhood around us. Nehemiah 6 says, this is when they, the Israelites were brought back into the land and they, they had rebuilt Jerusalem and they, they found the word and the, the priests were reading the word to them. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting their hands. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 98, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy. Sing praises with trumpets, with the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully to the Lord. Of course, Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds, according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet. Praise him with the harp. Praise him with the lyre. Praise him with the timbrel. That's like a tambourine and dancing. When we have baptisms, we should be dancing up and down the aisles with tambourines. This is such an incredible thing that should just be welling up with joy inside of us as we see another person taken out of Satan's clutches and brought into the kingdom of God for all eternity. Praise him with the loud cymbals. Praise him with stringed instruments. That's violas, violins, cellos, and guitars. And praise him with a pipe. Praise him with loud, resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. The residents of Methuen should be driving by here on Sunday morning, and what they should be able to hear from all the way out in the street is exactly what was heard in the time of Isaiah. Isaiah 24, 14 says, they raise their voices, they shout for joy, they cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Now, this was another difficult thing for me, because uh, most often when uh, the Holy Spirit is prompting me, to rejoice with exceeding great joy. My pride reminds me that I need to exercise some decorum. And it makes me look nervously around to see what other people are doing. And what happens is my pride quenches the Holy Spirit that's leading me to worship and glorify God with all that I am. And I do it when I do this my pride wants me to do it so that God won't be glorified and that I won't be embarrassed. And as I prepared this message and I thought about this, my prayer was that God would help me to crucify my pride. My pride is keeping me from a deeper relationship with God. It's stealing the joy that my God wants me to have and that my God wants me to express with all of my being. I confess before you and, and, and God this morning that too often I've selfishly let my pride have control over my emotions, and my voice, and my body. And I apologize before you this morning for that. And the worst part is, I know that Satan rejoices when I refuse to rejoice and worship God with all that I am, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind.
with my words and with my emotions. And I pray that I will learn to rejoice as the Holy Spirit leads me with all that I am and everything that he has done for me. May God be praised above all. Moving on, John 4.21. This is from our passage again. Jesus said to the woman, Now, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. The first thing we talked about, and I left that for last with the true worship, there's a specific place that we are to worship. It's not a church building. In fact, it's not any physical, geographical location anywhere on earth. It's in the center of the will of God. That's where we need to be. In fact, that's the only place where we can truly worship God. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in. If I'm not walking as God intends me to walk, then I'm not in the center of his will, and I cannot praise him and worship him with true worship. Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When I understand the danger of being anywhere except firmly planted right smack dab in the middle of the will of God, it should strike terror in my heart. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This is what it all comes down to. And this is a verse, you should mark this down, you should memorize this verse. This is the essence of the whole thing. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is offering everything I have for God to use. This is sacrificing every part of me that is evil to God for him to utterly destroy. This is acknowledging God's glory by how I live. This is being properly attired in the righteousness of Christ. This is bowing down totally vulnerable and in complete submission, allowing him to raise me up to me more than I could ever be on my own. This is rejoicing in who he is and what he is doing in me and through me. And this is exactly where I should be, right in the middle of the will of God. This is my spiritual service of worship. And why is this so important? Because God alone is worthy. God wants us to show his love to people through us. What happens when we see the power of his love flowing through us and touching the lives of other people? There's nothing else like it on earth. There's nothing the world can give us that can give us that thrill and that joy and that excitement when we see that happen. He can love us and other people in ways by loving through us that we can never do on our own. We are totally inadequate to love properly through our own efforts. The English word worship originally came from the idea of, of having worthiness, of being worthy of something, worthy of our service, worthy of our, our sacrifice to him. Worship is a response that we as conscious beings have, either for our creator or for the one who seeks to destroy us. 
through deception. That's not a comfortable thought for me either, to think that I'm either worshiping God or worshiping Satan. But that's the reality. When I stop and think about it, I can't do anything for myself. I can't create air for me to breathe. I can't make it rain so I have water to drink. I can't make anything grow so I have anything to eat. So I have to trust in someone or something else. And I have to ask, who am I trusting in this morning? Oh, I, no question about it for probably almost everyone in here this morning. We're trusting in God for our salvation. But the real question is, am I fully trusting in God for every single aspect of my life? Or am I placing some of my trust in the things of the world to give me the satisfaction and happiness that my old selfish nature desires? It's tough for me to ask where I am in my worship this morning. If I'm not truly worshiping God, then I'm worshiping Satan. And like it or not, my life is glorifying him. When I sin, the harsh reality is that I'm worshiping Satan because my actions demonstrate that I count him to be more worthy of my obedience than God. There's no middle ground on this. And just to show you this from scripture, in 1 John 2.16 we read, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. That's Satan's domain. And we can go back to Genesis chapter 3 where the first sin was committed. We all know the story well where he was in the garden and, and she was tempted by Satan. And when we come down to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we read, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and when it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make her wise, the pride of life, the boastful pride of life, Satan told her, you, you don't need God. You can be as God, knowing right from wrong. She took its fruit and ate. Adam did the same thing. They both counted Satan as being more worthy of their obedience and their worship than they did God. We have to be extremely careful of that in our own lives and really examine ourselves. That's what's being talked about when we, when we took the communion this morning. and We're, we're, we're giving, given the, 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 the warning that we need to examine ourselves closely before, before acknowledging that we're part of this covenant. But let's take a look at, at true worship in this sense. Matthew chapter 4, we're all familiar with this. Then Jesus, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be, become bread. This is ultimate lust of the flesh. Desire, not eaten for 40 days. The hunger must have just been unbelievable. But Jesus' worship, his trust, his full faith was in God, as, 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 as we see in the word. And that's where he put his faith. He said, as it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. He said, he, the, the scriptures tell us, it is written, that he will give his angels charge concerning you. They have to bear you up, lest you strike your foot on a stone pride of life. Don't you realize who you are? You're the son of God. Even the angels have to protect you. You're really something. And once again, Jesus, Jesus submitted to the word. Jesus said, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
And again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory, lust of the eyes. And here's, here's where we see that this is, this is what it's all about. It's worship of one or the other. And he said to him, all the, this is Satan now saying to Jesus, all these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. God is the only one who is worthy of our trust, of our love, of our service. God is perfectly good, therefore worshiping him means living a life in full submission to him. And it's not out of compulsion. It's because we have an intense desire of our, in our heart that springs forth in a deep love and an absolute adoration for who God is. It means complete submission to him, trusting that everything that happens in my life has been planned and orchestrated by God. And it's for my good. It means that everything that happens in my life has pers been personally crafted and prepared by God in order for me to know him more deeply and to be continually drawn closer and closer to him. This adoration and complete trust is expressed beautifully by the well-known hymn writer, Matthew Redman. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where the, your streams of abundance flow, and when I'm found in the desert place. And even though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all that it should be, and on the road marked with suffering. And even though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. You give and take away. And though you give and take away, my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I will turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I will find a way to say, blessed be your glorious name. To worship the Lord in spirit is to allow the spirit to control my thoughts, my words, my actions, so that the fruit of the Spirit grows and ripens and is seen and experienced by everyone God has brought into, into my life. To worship in truth is to trust fully in God's perfect love that was demonstrated in the complete unconditional sacrifice of Christ on the cross of Calvary. It's living fully controlled by the Holy Spirit so that everything I do is an outpouring of God's perfect love to everything, everyone he brings into my life. But how quickly and how easily the satanic forces of evil can entice me with the lusts of the world. It happens every day. We need to be continually in the world, in the word. We need to continually be supporting each other and building each other up. We need to be continually edifying and admonishing and rebuking when we astray. And this need to be, needs to be by loving brothers and sisters in Christ in order that we can remain firmly planted in the center of the will of God. This is true worship that pleases God because we do it willingly in spirit and in truth. It's the worship of our hearts and our minds of everything we are and everything we do that is focused on Christ alone. We're going to take our fellowship offering this morning in just a moment. So if the ushers would uh, please come forward and we will be taking the offering as we sing our final song this morning. This song, it's, uh, I want to close with it. It's, it's a song that I just love. 
but it reminds us of why we love and why we worship our God above all else and why it's perfect joy for us to submit fully and completely to him. And as we sing, may each of us rejoice in our Lord in spirit and in truth. And may we rejoice together in who God is. Chris.